school's in, and the teacher's got a saxophone. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, it was kind of loud. That's okay. Yeah, but anyway, I, I was I was gonna actually sing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," but I'll. I'll <laughs> <laughs> but we have so many questions to ask you, and again, it is an honor to have you on. Okay, for, first of all, how much how, how much money do I win if I answer the questions correctly? Well, uh, I I don't know, Jeff. What was what was the what was the going rate right now? I, I, I thought we were paying in Hennessy. Oh, we we're paying in Hennessy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what God, I, you yeah. were drinking. <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't gonna work, but okay. If, if will, will something come down if there's a secret word? Uh, now I'm now I'm really you know. <laughs> it's gonna anyone, rain on you. Pee Wee Herman okay. will drop down. Okay, <laughs> okay. Right. I was just wondering because if anybody listening understands the the reference I just made, then then good for you. You know, because that one goes back. You know, it's got to be Open. hanging and and it's got to be like falling. <laughs> it's got to yeah. be like. Falling side yeah. to side, and the secret was like, yeah. Say the secret word. That say the secret word, and the duck comes down. You win a hundred bucks. That was from Groucho Marx back in nineteen fifty, somewhere around there. All right. So now, so now you, you know, you know, now you know where I where, where I live. Yeah, that was Still. before your time, though. So um, close. Just, I get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the, sh- the show was in syndication for what fifty years after that. So exactly. Right. I was so yeah. excited because when I was a kid, uh, I was born in '68. When I was a kid, I used to break my neck getting off the bus in order to get home in time to see the monkeys, and I was just like, "I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss it." I had no idea at the time that that show was way syndicated at that point. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think neck. I think I think that show lasted what two seasons, maybe. I think. Uh, every, every single show was amazing to me as a kid. I don't know why. It was very inappropriate for a kid to watch, but I loved it. Uh, all right. Anyway. Well, <laughs> still watched it. We all did. Yes. Uh, I so, did. so anyway, let's talk about let's talk about Eric. That's why he's here, right? Born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, Actually moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia Richmond. first. Yeah. Okay, that's right. It eventually ended up in Atlanta around 1982, in 1982, even though you don't have any love for the Braves, which is fine. It's perfectly okay. Did you? I, I, used, I, used, I used to go see them a lot. <clears throat> Excuse me. I used to enjoy going to see them. But by then, got to tell you, by 83, 84, team wasn't, wasn't too good. Mm. Yeah, so, it wasn't until yeah, the yeah. early 90s that I actually figured out how to pull something out. But uh, then and they did. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then that was it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> They're still a good team, just, you know, not World Series. Yeah, so you're in Atlanta in 1982. It was around the same time that I moved here uh, to Atlanta, and I'm, I'm still here. You were obviously <laughs> in your 20s then, but I was around 14. But we have a very, as you know, we have a very eclectic uh, music scene here in Atlanta, as you know. And as a musician, what was the primary thing that you noticed about – the music scene as compared to as compared to up north and in, in Virginia and Pittsburgh. I mean what to, I mean to you be, have ab- to be absolutely honest with you, I moved to Atlanta um coincidentally. I um actually I moved I actually moved there in 1983. Um one of my closest friends who ended up um playing trumpet with me with Prince, uh, Matt Bliston, who's known to the Prince fans as Atlanta Bliss. Um, he was from Pittsburgh. We, we went to school together and we played in bands off and on for over 10 years before we ever got involved with Prince. He had moved to Atlanta. 
he was interested. We, we were both kind of burnt out on the bar band scene because that's what basically we were, were bar band musicians playing like, you know, from 250 to 275 gigs a year, just night after night after night. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you know, you might bring home 150, 200 bucks for playing night after night. Mm -hmm. um, Matt moved to, to Atlanta in order to try to see if he could get involved in commercial music, making jingles and things like that. But at the time, um, Atlanta was becoming a, a big media center, what CNN and, and, and all the things like that. And he wanted to get out of Pittsburgh. So he went down to Atlanta. A few months later, I went down to visit him and just decided to say, you know, to hell with it. I'm done with Pittsburgh. I'm out of there. I think I'll come down here. <laughs> that, that was pretty much that was pretty much my plan. So um, I, I was there just kind of bumming around and not really doing much. Um, a year later, I was starting to work with Prince. I, I was still living in Atlanta for a couple more years while I was the first few years I was working with Prince and really commuting. So I wasn't by then I wasn't really spending that much time in Atlanta. Um, I don't really recall that there was that much of a scene bar band wise. There there were a couple of good clubs. There was Moon Shadows in in Virginia Highlands, which, which was is still a, there, by the way. Is that still okay? <laughs> um I used to go to some clubs and listen to bands in in Buckhead, places like that. Um, I did a handful of of um, just club gigs, lounge gigs. Couldn't even tell you. I, I little memory of what they were even about. Um, so really, it was a point in time where I was kind of wondering what was next for me as a musician, and even I was even coming to a determination that I didn't know that music was something I was really going to be able to um, continue in a way that was going to be meaningful for me. When you're in your 20s and you're and you're bumming around and playing with good bands, I played with some absolute fabulous bands, but when you're just making a couple hundred bucks a week, that's okay when you're in your 20s. But by the time you're in your early 30s and you're still living hand to mouth playing gigs like that, you say, okay, you know, um, is this all I'm going to do from, you know, with my life? Um, and jazz was always the primary you know aspiration musically for me but at that point i didn't really think that i possessed what was necessary as just a straight up jazz player for example just say go to new york and just jump into the pit there and see if i could sink or swim um mm -hmm. that wasn't something that i that, that at the time I, I i think that i would have been successful doing so um like I say, I really didn't have much of a plan. I was I was just kind of living hand to mouth. And then all of a sudden, my brother called my, my brother, Alan, who was uh, Prince's uh, office manager and road manager at the time. He calls and says, Prince is putting this together, this band uh, called The Family. And he's interested in having the saxophone in it. Um, apparently, Alan played him some recordings that I had done. And Prince was fortunately enthused enough to say, um, tell your brother, to arrange for your brother to come up here and 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 let's do some recording sessions, see what happens. So, you know, my, my involvement with Prince was real simple. I needed a gig. And it was, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that was it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Cause I, but I, you know, I do want to take a little step back, like tell me what type of music that, you know, you and Matt, uh, Matt Liston, AKA Atlanta bliss played together. Uh, you guys had a hard funk jet. Uh, I, Rob had kind of filled me on some history of this, you know, pre Prince, 
Well, well the, fir the, fir the first band that we played together was in, uh, I think, 1975. It was, um, it was a lounge oh, yeah. band, like a real Holiday Inn kind of lounge band uh, with a singer, singer-piano player. His name was Alki Stereopolis, of all, you know. <laughs> and wonderful singer, wonderful musician. We had a good little band. And we played, you know, this is 1975. We were playing still a lot of standards from the Tin Pan Alley, old, you know, Great American Songbook. But we were also playing some contemporary standards. In 1975, you were in a lounge band. You were playing songs from Jesus Christ Superstar and, and stuff like yeah. that. You know, uh, but it, it, it was a quintet. And we played um, we played hotel lounges and, and restaurants and, and dining rooms. Um, but you're playing four, five, sometimes six sets a night, six nights a week, week after week after week, um, and it, it was good music, and it, it was it was an important gig for both me and Matt because we we got a lot of shit together on that gig, because mm -hmm. because the nature of the music gave us uh, enough time to stretch out, and like I say, playing playing old Cole Porter songs, Jerome Kern, you know that's 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 the shit that I enjoyed, you know, grew up listening to by Jazz Cats. Right. So um, that was an important year for, you know, I think for both of us. Um, after that, in the next several years, we went just hardcore in, in, into R&B and funk because that's where we could make, make a living around, around the Pittsburgh scene. So we eventually um, had a band called Taken Names. And that was, it was basically a band put together by me and, and a, a drummer whose name was H.B. Bennett, who was my closest, dearest friend who tragically passed away uh, several years ago. Um, but we had put this band together. Matt played with us in this band. He was kind of like the, you know, it was it was it was an eight-piece band, so it, that didn't make it easy playing bar bands with an eight-piece band. So so it wasn't a whole lot of money. But no. it, you know, this was 1977, 78. It was a tremendous time to be an R&B funk-oriented cover band. Because like you say, you had Stevie Wonder at his best. He had Earth, Wind, and Fire at their best. He had George Clinton and Bootsy at their best. He had Isley Brothers at the best. AWB, cool in the game. So, I mean, it was a field day for, you know, what we could do. Um, I used to like to take the songs and try to make arrangements out of them that could maybe, you know, be a little bit different. Sometimes it was, it was a matter of taking, like, an Earth, Wind, and Fire song that might have, like, you know, 40 musicians on it and trying to break it down to something that would work with a band with like one singer and two horn players. Right. Um, we, we, we did write our own material. The pop oriented stuff that we wrote really wasn't very good because that's not really as writers where my heart was or Matt Listen's heart was. We wrote a lot of instrumental music. And fortunately in those days, um, we would, this, the, the gigs would start about 10, 10.30 at night, 10.30 until 2. That was the bar band hours in, in Pittsburgh. Um, the first sets, we could normally get away with playing instrumental stuff. And some of us were, you, you know, a lot of the stuff we played was was more in the character of, of, of like Weather Report, because that those were our heroes. I mean, that was my biggest hero in, in, in musicians and bands at that time. So we were writing and playing music like that. We could get away with it on the first set because the dancers wouldn't come to the club until about 11, 11.30. So by the time they come, we were doing the second set. Now it's okay. Now we just got to keep them dancing. But back in those days, as long as we could keep them on the, on the dance floor, we could take the music and the songs anywhere we wanted. So we might take a song like Cooling Gang's like 
open sesame or something like that. And we play that sucker for 15 minutes, you know, because we, we do the song and then we go off into vamps and grooves and everyone would solo. As long as the dancers were out there, everything was fine. So, mm -hmm. you know, then after that, that band broke up from 1979 to 82. I was with um, an absolute tremendous band led by a singer named Billy Price. Billy Price is a blues and R&B singer, was based in Pittsburgh. He spends his time now between Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Um, he's very, very well known in the hardcore blues R&B community. I mean, he's a, a regular performer at many of the blues festivals. He's even been an artist in residence. And he had a band for many years called the Keystone Rhythm Band. And I, I was a member of that band for four years. The band predated me by about a year, year and a half. After I left the band, that band was together for, oh, I think another five, six, seven years after I left the band. In the four years that I was in the band, and th this is no bullshit, this is because I, I have all of my journals and all of the itineraries to prove it. I played 981 gigs with that one band in four years. Exactly. Now that's, you know, now, and, and that, that was typical. I mean, that, that was to be a bar band musician back then. Yeah. Um, that's what you did. And, and we, we spent about, oh, I'd say about two weeks of every month playing in the bars around Pittsburgh. The rest of the time we would be on the road playing a circuit of clubs anywhere from Boston down to Atlanta. Um, we played a lot around uh, D.C. and Baltimore, Philadelphia. And we were doing double bills. I, I mean, there, there were some absolutely fabulous bands. Um, Duke Robillard, his band. Bob Margolin was a tremendous guitar player, was guitar player for Muddy Waters, Fabulous Thunderbirds, Room Full of Blues, uh, the Nighthawks. But we used to we used to do double bills with uh, Albert Collins quite often and with Stevie Ray Vaughan, because this was when Stevie Ray was still playing clubs. He hadn't blown up into being a superstar yet. So, you know, people ask me about what it was like to play with Prince and say, well, is he the greatest guitar you were ever on stage with? And I would say, well, maybe he was one of them. But Stevie Ray Vaughan would always sit in yeah. with us when we would do these double bills. Wow. And I got to tell you, Stevie Ray Vaughan was one of those cats that come up, just plug his guitar into an amp, hit one note, and the stage would levitate. I mean, Stevie, right. <laughs> Stevie Ray Vaughan is just abs was absolutely just one of the most incredible guitar players you could ever imagine, you, you know. Um, and and I, I mean, I was really happy for him and not surprised a couple of years later when all of a sudden he broke out and became a superstar. I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If anyone on that circuit was going to do that. But anyway, anyway, this band with Billy Price was a tremendous, tremendous band. In fact, I want to give a shout out. Might, might be listening. There's a, a tenor saxophone player by the name of Jim Eminger. We, we, we called him the Iceman and he still is in Pittsburgh. And he was my section mate in that band. And I probably played, like I said, I played 981 gigs standing next to that cat, you know. And um, I got to tell you, there, there's there's a lot about the saxophone that I didn't know before I met him and that I know now, you know. He's a yeah. tremendous jazz and R&B and blues player. And and it was it was a treat to be able to, to, to be in a band with somebody of that caliber. And we're still tight now. He's a bit now. He, Jeff, he is an Atlanta Braves uh, fanatic. So if he's if he's watching now, he's got one eye on this and the other guy on, on the game going on right now. That's right. But um, anyway, he, 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 you know, still one of my dearest friends. And, and one of the wonderful things about playing that band was being able to, to, to play in the section with him. So that that was basically it. After that, I was burned out on bar bands. And I said, I never want to see the inside of a, of a nightclub again. 
So well, I, I was lucky enough to actually see Stevie Ray Vaughan one time, and it was by accident because I was actually there to see Huey Lewis in the news on their sports tour. Okay. And I I didn't know who was opening up and happened to be sitting there. I got there early. Like, uh, well, Rob will tell you, I always get like to concerts really early and we'll sit there and just stare for like an hour. And then finally the, the opening band came out and I didn't know who it was. They left all the lights on. This was at the Omni in downtown Atlanta. And uh-huh. guy in this hat walks out and he goes, my name's Steve Ray Vaughn and we're double trouble. And they double broke trouble. it. I was like, never heard of you. But by the time they got done playing, I was like, yeah. Yui, who? Who am I here to see? I forgot who I was here to see. <laughs> no, no, I know. I know. Because everyone used to talk in those days about his brother, Jimmy, who was, you know, the guitar yes. player with, with uh, Thunderbirds. Uh, and Jimmy's fabulous. I mean, Jimmy's uh, is absolutely geez. great. Um, but his little brother came up. And, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. And and speaking of brothers, I mean, we, we you briefly touched on the fact that your older brother, Alan Leeds, uh, had really gotten a name for himself, obviously. For those of you just joining us on audio, uh, we are joined by the legendary saxophonist, Eric Leeds, in the house. It's an honor to have you here. But again, your older brother, Alan Leeds, had gotten a name for himself at this point for having been the road manager for James Brown and, and then Prince. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the question I had was really kind of, uh, and then he, you mentioned that he gave you a call saying the prince was putting together the family and wanted a saxophone, and that's how you got in. So I kind of have a little bit of a two-part question. But first off, what was it like watching him succeed so well in an industry that you were really heavily involved in? And were you jealous or envious at all, or did you kind of you know separate yourself from that emotion? Or what what was it like watching your brother succeed so well? Well, Alan, Alan was in the business end. You know, and right. and so it was a whole different. You know, it was a whole different um, aspiration. I I was I was thrilled. I mean, it was my big brother. You know, and I I, I mean I, I have to I have to really be honest. Is that I don't know if I would be a musician if it wasn't for him, because it was Alan that introduced me to every aspect of the music that I love. Now maybe I would have found it otherwise. I don't know, um, but you, you know, Alan. Um, we had an uncle, um, Mel Leeds, who was the station manager of WINS Radio in New York in the 50s, who was really one of the um, creators of the whole Top 40 radio format. My uncle Mel was who brought Alan Freed from Cleveland to New York, who mm-hmm. was the first, you know, uh, Cousin Brucey, Murray the K. All of these guys got their start, you know, their big start on radio because of my uncle. So my uncle used to send to us, so my brother basically, um, you know, the DJ copies of all the hit records. Every week we'd get a box of 45s. So Alan was already into the music. Um, I don't I don't know why my brother gravitated to the music when he was like five, six years old. But by the time Alan was nine or 10 years old, he wasn't like subscribing to Weekly Reader or Hunters or, you know, or Popular McCandy. He was subscribing to to Billboard, Cashbox, and Record World, all of the trade journals. <laughs> so he had already decided that somehow, some way, you know, the music industry, radio, whatever. Uh, and he first was was a radio disc jockey in, in, in Richmond, Virginia, where we lived. Um, and that's where he then became a, a show promoter and everything. And that's where he met mm-hmm. James Brown and everybody else in, in R&B then. Um, so it was Alan that basically 
introduced me to this record, you know, all this music. So I'm I'm five years younger than Alan. So part of it is like, okay, that's my big brother. I want to be cool like my big brother. So I'm going to be into what he's into. Right. But it it did resonate with me beyond that, beyond just, you know, trying to be into what my brother is. And and I I did start to even at a relatively young young age discern certain things or preferences of mine versus preferences of his or whatever. Um but for you know, probably the first music that really you know meant something to me when I was six or seven years old was was Little Richard, Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, those cats. But yeah. then um then Alan brought home What I Say by Ray Charles. Oof. And it was all over. I bet. <laughs> yeah, it was all over. I am a musician primarily because of the music of Ray Charles. I'm a saxophone player primarily because of the guy who was his Maceo Parker. I mean, if you want to talk about back in those days, David Fadhead Newman, who was just absolutely to me, just still one of the greatest. I mean, he's he passed away years ago, but but he was my first hero as a, as a saxophone player. And to this day, there is there there are a few sounds in music that are more beautiful or or as beautiful to me as the sound that this cat David Newman put through his through his horn. And that was what captured my imagination. So by nine, uh, time I'm nine, nine or 10 years old and said, wow, maybe I'd like to see if I could do that. Now, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really consider pursuing music as a career until many, many years later. But, you know, I had, I had to do something. You know, was there so, a specific piece of advice that Alan gave you uh, from a music perspective? I mean, from a music business perspective that he passed on to you that you just like were just like, man, that piece of advice saved my ass. No, the, pro the, the problem is, is that the advice that he passed on to me, I never listened to because the biggest piece was like, take the gig, you know, <laughs> yeah. to hell with whether you like the music or not. Take the gig. And the only time I ever did that was when I met Prince. Because well, I had no interest in Prince. I knew very little about his music. There was some music of his I liked, but there was nothing about it that suggested to me that there was anything about him that I would have any particular interest in wanting to be involved in. And Alan's calling me for two weeks, and I'm sitting in Atlanta doing next to nothing. And Alan's calling me, there's a gig up here. Will you get on a plane and come up here? And finally, I did. So. Yeah, and did he ever call you from the road and share any kind of crazy stories that, you know, from the road from James Brown's? Well, I, I was around James Brown a lot. I mean, I knew James Brown and 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 since I was 14 years old. So Alan didn't have. I mean, yeah, there were always crazy stories, but <laughs> I was I was privy to be, you know, to witness the crazy stories. What was the what, first crazy thing that you saw James Brown do or saw backstage? You were like, holy shit, this is for me. <laughs> this this is one this is one of my favorite moments of of growing up and understanding what the whole thing was about. Um, this was 1966. We're living in Richmond, Virginia. I'm in eighth grade. Um, so I'm, I'm 14 years old. Alan is 19 years old. Alan was already an on-air disc jockey at the, at the local R&B radio station in Richmond. It was W-A-N-T. He was also, he had also known James Brown already for a couple of years because back in those days, he had to understand that the business model for the, for the musicians and the artists pop artists was very simple. The artists had relationships with the DJs because the DJs played their records. Right, and it was right. real simple. They play my record. I get paid. I can come into town and sell tickets. It, and it was a cash and carry business. I mean, you know, you know, it was, it was very simple. So Alan, um, 
there, there was a, one of the program directors at this radio station who was kind of a legend in, in, in Richmond. His name was, was Tom Mitchell. Um, and he was the promoter on many of, of you know, the shows that would come through. So Alan learned a lot from him. So Alan just kind of, you know, said, okay, this is how I want to get into this. So um, he would make it a, he would make it a point to get backstage at all the shows with a big reel to reel tape recorder and go to the artist and say, my name's Alan Lees. I'm from the radio station. We're playing your records. Can you, you know, I got a Saturday morning radio show. Can you do me an air check? Can you do me a spot? So Alan would like have like, like uh, Curtis Mayfield and the impressions. And they say, yeah, yeah, we'll do anything because that's what they would do for the DJs. You know, it, it, this was the legal way of doing payola. I mean, really, right. you know, it's a legal way of doing it. So Alan would, you know, so that's how he met James Brown. Um, James took a liking to Alan. And anyway, so now it's 1966. Alan had already known James Brown for about a year. Um, I had met James once really briefly for about two minutes, but this is the first time. Anyway, we're at the theater where they were playing, the Moscow Auditorium. It's still uh, uh, the, the venue in Richmond. It's now called the uh, Altria Theater. And it's still a venue that, that you know, a lot of musicians play. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, we're backstage. This is 1966. James Brown was about maybe um, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. Back in those days, he didn't really do sound checks because the, the PA systems on gigs back then was two microphones. You know, <laughs> there was a microphone for the lead singer and maybe a microphone for the horn soloist. That was it. You know, right, so, yeah. so there was no sound to check. There were no mixers. There were no mics on the drums, no mics on the that. horns, really? no mics really? on anything. I didn't even realize that. There was all, there's only two mics. Back in those days, there was like two mics on the stage. Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, what we think of as sound systems didn't even start to really, you know, exist until you know, a couple of years after that, late sixties, early seventies. But by then, you know, that's why he used to have three drummers, you know, three kits, three kits mm -hmm. and three drummers. And those cats would play so freaking hard. Yeah. And, the, and the guitar players and bass player would just turn their amps up to 10. Yeah. You know, if you're British and playing with spinal tap, you turn the 11, you turn it up to 11. 11. Right. <laughs> all right. And right. that's it. Now you can you unfortunately you really couldn't hear the horns all that well because there were just no microphones. So these cats are playing their lungs out, and it was sometimes hard to hear. Anyway, at this time he had a huge band. He had five, he had four or five saxophones, three trumpets, trombone, two guitar players, drummer, three drummers. So they're just rehearsing, and James is at the organ playing organ with the band. They're just running through some instrumentals. My brother had gone up front to the box office because he wanted to see, you know, come back to be able to tell Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, we're doing good business tonight. You know, that that's so I'm standing there. I'm dressed in my little suit. I'm clean. You know, I'm, I'm this James Brown. You got to show hard. You got to be clean. So I'm sitting there by the side of the stage and I'm sitting there. Oh, my God, this is the James Brown band. And I'm sitting here. And I'm going to be able to hear them just rehearse. So all of a sudden. One of the crew guys, one of the truck, one of the security guys with, with, with James's organization sees me standing back there. And he doesn't know who I am. Some skinny little white kid sitting back there. And he says, son, uh, this is the backstage area. You're going to have to vacate the premises. You're not, you don't belong back here. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, you throw me out on the street. My brother's up front. You know, what, what are you doing? <laughs> James Brown hears this. He stops 
and he says to to to, to secure i think the guy's name was jimmy he said no jim jim jimmy jimmy he's okay he said rick rick that my, my name was i i always went to name rick back when i was a kid rather than eric so he said rick rick come come step closer to the band step closer to the band so you can hear the band and I'm thinking, oh my God, James Brown just saved my ass from being thrown out. And <laughs> but <laughs> and now, now, but here's the thing. I'm thinking about I'm James Brown's best friend now. But as soon as he said that, he looked at the cat, the crew cat, and said, He's with the DJ. <laughs> now I got it. Fortunately, I was, you know, I said, I figured said, right, I'm with the DJ. Said the DJ's in the box office. This young man is a DJ's brother. Don't, excuse me, don't fuck with the DJ. Now, my thing was, now at that point, I'm about ready to look at Jimmy and say, Yeah, Jimmy, I'm with the DJ. You know, and I didn't, but you know, that now, um, yeah. not only was it, it, it was, you know, something that I will always relish just because I said, Oh my God, oh, this is freaking James Brown. Right. But it was a lesson, you know? <laughs> It was yeah. like understand what's going on here, right? Um, so I, you know, those those that's so I, so you know they they not crazier than that. Other than being in a dressing room with James when um, after the gigs, you know, James Brown wouldn't just jump in the you know James Brown has left the building. No, he'd go back to his dressing room and hold court after every gig. And first he'd do the business. He mm. check you know he check the business for that. Do all the accounting. And then there would always be people hanging around and his dressing room was open house for sometimes two, three hours after the end of the gig. Um, and whenever oh. he'd be in town in Pittsburgh or Richmond or wherever, you know, I was, I was hanging and, and I would be able to, he always had a little portable record player, you know, little, you know, back in the late sixties, little portable stereo record player, because he always had test pressings of his next record or whatever he'd be doing in the recording studio. And he knew me well enough and knew that, you know, how deep I was into the music by then. So I knew the I knew the pattern of how the shows would go and when it was okay for me to knock on his door. Mm -hmm. You know, when I knew I wasn't bothering him, you know, I was right before the gig, whatever. But if, if he had just come off the first set, then he was chilling for a while. The band or the supporting singers were on. I knew, okay, give him 15, 20 minutes. And I can knock on the door and poke my head in. And, and say to the, to, to the woman who was his wardrobe mistress, it said, her name was Gertrude. I said, Gertrude, Mr. Brown. And, and said, Rick, come on in. You know, and I said, all right, here we go. So I knew I was going to, you know, he was gonna, he was going to want to play me music because he wanted to play the new music. So first of all, he just plays some some studio cuts, some some B-sides or whatever, just to see what my reaction is. You know, and say, I like that. Because he, he loved playing blues. James Brown, all he really wanted to do was sing blues. That's all he really wanted to do. So, he, so, you know, and I'd say, that's cool. But I'd be sitting there and he's laughing. He said, all right, all right, Rick, I know, you know, you want to hear a new one. I said, yeah, I want to hear a new one. So then he put it on. I just remember one time he put it on. It was give it up or turn it loose. You know, and I'm just sitting there and I'm saying, nobody has heard this yet. You know, he just recorded it like three days ago. You know, that's amazing. This on the radio in two or three weeks. So that was my. You know, you I mean, I mean, you listen to me like I'm, I'm, you know, I get excited about this shit. Oh, this sure. is, this yeah, is why, this is why, this is why when I met Prince, it was, all right, 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I get it. I get it. And we're, I mean, every single one of us are huge, just so you know, every single one of us and everybody here are huge, huge Prince fans. You can obviously see behind me that's uh, absolutely. It's just he was an icon in, 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 in my eyes. I mean, James was obviously historic, but I mean, Prince. It, no, it, it's a lot of generational. What, yeah. You know, James Absolutely. Brown was my prince. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I could totally get that. Yeah. Totally get that. Rob, you had a question. Oh, yeah. It was about uh, James Brown. Um, that at that time period, I mean, you obviously you lived through some amazing musical history, and this is kind of part of that. Mm -hmm. um if i'm not mistaken that was during that was during the later parts of the chitlin circuit yeah um yeah, it was. what was yeah. that like i mean i i it's still you know i, I grew up in the 70s so i kind of have a little bit of understanding but i can't imagine what that was like what was it really like I'm, I'm going to give I'm going to give you a straight up answer and and forgive me because it's a plug my brother alan has a book that came out last year Oh, okay. called There Was a Time, My Life with James, My Years with James Brown and the Chitlin Circuit. It's oh. go to Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever. It's and and it and everything you want to know about the Chitlin Circuit, it's in that book. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean what was it, it like it, for you as a as a young as a young well, boy? It, being it, there it, and it was it was the, you know, it was it just it was what everybody expected. So you didn't Yeah, think yeah about pretty it? pretty much. I, I mean yeah. in, in you know, like I said, Alan, Alan, because of his involvement with the radio station, he knew everybody. I mean, he knew Otis Redding. He knew um, um, Joe Tex. He, 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 here's here's a crazy story. The, 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 later that year, and in, in, in this would have been 1966, also, um, there was one of the one of the package tour shows that that um, was promoted okay. by you know Irvin Feld, who was the the family who owned the Barnum and Bailey Ringley Brothers Circus. He started out as a promoter doing R&B shows, you know, from the 50s all through the 60s. So oh, the wow. Irvin Feld shows, they were called, uh, I believe they were called Super Attraction. There was uh, there was Supersonic Attractions. Then I think his was, I, I forget. Anyway, this was an Irvin Feld show. And these shows would go out for like, you know, maybe two, three months. Now, this particular show, um, this would have been sometime in spring or summer of 66, I think it was. Um, the headliner of the show was Joe Tex, because he was big. He was big, and he yeah. had a big band. Yeah. Um, the Marvelettes were on that show. Um, Stevie Wonder, little Stevie Wonder was on yes. that show. Walter Jackson was on that show. Um, I forget who else was on. Anyway, I had met Joe Tex the year before. And Joe Tex was a sweetheart of a guy, and he was a really friendly guy. And he would say, and, and you know, through Alan, and, and he took a liking to me, whatever he said. And there was, there was at, at the same theater, the Mosque Theater, now, now the Altria, um, Back in those days, the star's dressing room, you know, I mean, you know, it was it was just a room with a concrete floor and a little table with a, you know, with a mirror. That was the star's dressing room. It was just immediately off stage right. Um, and, and that that's what it that's what it was. And, and, and you know, they, they put in a, a rack of or to hang the clothes on. Anyway, I was watching the show and Joe Tex is in the star's dressing room. He says to me, he says, um, by the way, Rick, he said, anytime you want to just come in and hang in here, feel free, because my door is always open. You know, it wasn't quite like James Brown, but, you know, but right. that's what Joe said. Anyway, I'm digging one act. And I said, OK, I know this act. I don't think it'll work. I think go back and hang with, with Joe Tex. Why not? 
So I'm sitting in Joe, Joe text and I'm just sitting in a, in a folding chair and all of a sudden oh, Solomon Burke was on the show. So Solomon Burke comes in and he sits down on the floor and starts kicking it with Joe Tex. And I'm just sitting there just like, said, wow. All of a sudden, Stevie Wonder walked in. <laughs> Stevie Wonder walks in with, with, his, with his guy and he says to Joe Tex, he said, Joe, can I borrow a suit? One of my suits got a rip in it and I'm not gonna be able to mend it before I, I gotta go on in 20 minutes. And Joe Tex laughs and he says, yeah, um, take the green one. <laughs> you know, everybody laughs ha 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 right okay so but sure enough he's, he's, so anyway so all of a sudden so they start chatting and all of a sudden they're starting talking about musicians the guys i'd never heard of you know just basic like musicians talking about experience with different musicians that they might have had in their bands over the years or whatever and i'm just sitting there and listening and, and the thing was it really at the time it really didn't really phase me because i'd already been hanging with james brown so I mean, you know. So, so but years, you know, years later, I'm sitting there. Said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Stevie Wonder. Oh yeah, I sat in a dressing with him and Joe Tex Solomon Burke, where they were just sitting kicking it for like 20 minutes before one of them has to run out the door, go do their 10 minutes, you know, because that's about what they got, you know, 10, 10, 12 minutes, and then run back or whatever, run into and and so the, yeah, that was that was that was that was the Chitlin circuit. Oh, you know, but uh, but anyway, Al, Alan's book really, really does go in. It gives it gives a, a a really, really great background in 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 what that whole thing was. Yeah, it, it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Exactly that no, you no, mentioned. No. That. Oh, go ahead, Rob. What's that? You were no. saying? Okay, Jeff, you're okay. up. So no, it's good that you said that. Um, as soon as you mentioned it, I, I pulled it up real quick and started looking at it, and I posted it for all the our listeners. Or on, on yeah. so they can uh, um, take a look at it also, and someone else did also. That way, you know, hey, he, something's going to happen out of that. We yeah, always like to hear that. Yeah, and Clark um, said that the, the book is fantastic, by the way. So, Clark. oh, Clark, yeah, Clark Irwin. He's Clark. Clark is uh, lives in Richmond, Virginia. Um, he's a very, very dear friend of mine. Clark lived in Pittsburgh, and he was the sound engineer in my band, Taking Names. Ah, there you go. Oh, okay, yeah. he All he right. was like, and and for and in those days. Uh, you know, by then, late late 70s, we had a sound system that was, you know, 20 times more than what James Brown's sound system was back in the 60s. Yeah. And Clark, Clark was really, um, Clark was the ninth member of the band, because this is a guy that was with us every night. And, you know, the old, fr the old phrase was garbage in, garbage out. So, you know, whatever he could do with the sound dependent, we, we had to be playing it. But once, you know, he had to make it work in the room and he did. I've got I've got a lot of live person, you know, cassette gigs, you know, tapes from that band. And a lot of them sound absolutely fabulous. And that's because of Clark Irwin. He, he, was, he was a good guy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah actually, that's funny because that you said that, because I know that uh, you're not somebody who uh, passes out uh, uh, bootlegs. But some of those shows that you did in the late 70s with Taken Names, that sounds that sounds amazing. Do you have I've, any? I'm, I, uh, I've, I've thought about putting some examples up on YouTube, and, mm. and I might do that. Uh, you know, of some, of some, you know, just, just as, as, as a little thing. Um, you know, because, because, because it was my band, and, and it was my band at a time when I was. The band was together for about once again a bar band. We were together for a year and a half, and we played 365 gigs in a year and a half. You know, so I mean, once again. Right. It was right. like night after night. And if you can play night after night, then that's how a band becomes good. Right. And um, 
the, the band was kind of my workshop because I, I was I was learning the craft and I had this band to be able and, and like I say, we're, we're primarily a cover band, but even, you, you know, having all that wonderful material to screw around with and then be able to take these these absolutely wonderful musicians. Um, still one of the greatest rhythm sections that I ever played with. You know, they they they, they were just just phenomenal night after night. The band just yeah, we took names. What can I tell you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. and you kicked us. For just joining us, <laughs> those of you just joining us, we are joined by the legendary Eric Leeds. Jeff, I know you got some, and then we're we're gonna have to dedicate the rest of the time to Prince questions. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, chewing that, on this cool. one, man. I there's a couple of things about your musical influences and how things are going, and uh -huh. like you've been doing music for such a very long time. Like, you know, we're talking about all these people, and you've been listening and into it's music and paying attention it's been longer than you think right so <laughs> so it, yeah many 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 years let's just say to put it that way now when you play we can hear that we can actually recognize a signature that you have like just something about what you play when you know in your recordings that you just know that oh, that's eric leeds oh wow you know versus somebody else and despite whatever it is we hear in your sound who do you feel that you grew the most from or are influenced by stylistically? Maybe like who you channel when you're in your zone and actually playing. Well, um, it's it's difficult for me when I hear myself not to know where some of the, you know, where, where the influences are. And I said, oh, boy, I said, oh, boy, I got to I got to disguise that a little better next. You know, um, like I said, um, it, it's funny that through all of the hardcore jazz guys, you know, particularly, I mean, I, I, obviously I, I can spend, I could spend six weeks listening to only Coltrane, you know, and that, and that would be fine. You know, I could spend six weeks listening to just Wayne Shorter. Um, mm -hmm. We're probably, you know, two of the most significant um, saxophonists, but then there are, dozens and dozens of guys who I've listened to over the years. Um, but your first love, I, you know, it's almost for the first time you have sex, you know, it, it good or bad, you're not going to forget it. But, when, <laughs> but if it's, but if it's good, but if it's good, you'll carry that for the rest of your life. Well, well I'm sorry. I, I just go back to fathead, David Newman. You know, there is so much about um, now. I, I I never wanted to sound like anybody. You know, right. I, I I just wanted I just you know when I um, I played baritone saxophone for years before I played tenor, um, and when I started finally playing tenor, all I wanted to do was make sure does it sound like a tenor saxophone? That's all I want. Just does, does it sound like a tenor? Fine. So whatever it was was my sound. Um, there are players like. Uh, Pharaoh Sanders, Stan mm -hmm. Getz, Joe Farrell, uh, David Liebman, um, Archie Shep. Archie John Shep Andy. absolutely was was somebody who I I love back in the day, um, and and I mean, on the primary alto player because I don't I don't I used to play alto I don't play alto anymore, um, was Cannonball Adderley, who mm -hmm. who was hands down one of the most significant influences on me as a saxophone player um and and too many names that, that I, can't, I can't even go into uh i can't even remember now obviously from the standpoint of growing up with james brown's music 
and being so heavily involved in funk bands as much as I was in jazz bands, mm -hmm. Maceo Parker was, you know, um, because I used to be able to be around him when I was a kid. Right. Right. You know, yeah. and I'll tell you something. Now, the thing a lot of people don't, don't realize is that back in the sixties, when Maceo was in James Brown's band in the sixties, he played tenor. He left James Brown's band in 1970. He came back with James around 1973. And then he started playing alto, which everybody, which is basically all he's played since then. But mm -hmm. all of the iconic solos that he played on Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, Cold Sweat, Get Together, I Got That Feeling, Lick and Stick, Say It Loud, on and on and on. Those are all those are all tenor saxophone solos. Um, one of the greatest um, coincidences, but one of the greatest things that ever happened in music was James Brown and Maceo Parker finding each other. Right, right. Because Maceo already played like he did before he met James Brown. And it was like, when you listen to Maceo, as great as he is, it's like, okay, this is how that ca this cat plays. If only there was a music that really was perfect for how he plays. And James Brown was making that music, but yet he didn't have Maceo yet. Now, he had great, great saxophone players. There was a cat who was with him for years and years by the name of St. Clair Pinckney, who was, who was from, 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 from Augusta, Georgia. Tremendous R&B saxophone player. But Maceo was like the man from Mars. You know, he came with something else. And when you first heard James Brown's music and Maceo, you just said, oh, my God. This, you know, it was one, and, and Maceo got the gig because of his brother, who was a drummer, Melvin Parker, who James hired in 1964. And Melvin told James, well, Mr. Brown, uh, I'd, I'd like to go on, on the road with you. Um, can, can Do you have a gig for my brother? And James said, well, what does your brother play? He said, well, he plays, plays tenor. And so I, I don't need another tenor player. But I tell you what, I could use a baritone player. So we met Maceo, and Maceo has told me this many times, funny story. He said, he said James looked at Maceo and said, son, can you play baritone? Do you play baritone? Now, Maceo had never played baritone before. He said, damn right I play baritone. So, so for the first year Maceo was with James, he was primarily a baritone player, you know. But he was also, and anyway, it was just, it was one of the greatest, most seren, you know, serendipitous moments in music that those two found each other. Hmm. Maceo, Park, Maceo Parker can do a thing could do things with the saxophone that I have never heard anybody else do. Wow. Nobody. Yeah. yeah. The only cat that could that 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 you could even confuse with that was say King Curtis, you know, somebody mm -hmm. like that. Okay. But Maceo's articulation and his ability to take one beat of one note and slice it into about five thousand different parts. Now I can play note for note almost every solo he played on the James Brown records back then. But there are certain phrases that you cannot replicate. I can come close, but uh-uh. It, it, it was like, people used to talk about like John Lee Hooker, how he would sing. Everything would be in between the beat. You could not, his time was impeccable, but yet you can't count it. You can't mm. notate it, you can't count it. Well, that's Maceo as a, as, as a saxophone. And the closest thing to Maceo as a saxophone player is James Brown as a singer. Right. There you go. You know, that makes sense. and yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah.
And to talk Maybe. about legendary horn players, because I want to switch. I know our, our audience will kill us if we don't get to some Prince questions, because I want to kind of tie this to Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, obviously there, there's a couple of parts to this, um, but I want to kind of combine it into one question here. Miles Davis, I guess. I mean, one of the most amazing triple players, and I, mean, I, I can't really think of anybody that, that kind of has done it better as far as just kind of going off. But I, I kind of remember, we just had the Sign of the Times deluxe edition that had come out, which, which featured Miles Davis that came out for uh, the performance of New Year's Eve at Paisley Park. And I remember yeah. hearing the story about all of you guys were just like stunned because out walks Miles Davis and, and Prince is obviously a huge fan and, and, and they kind of walk out and... I, well, I, we knew we knew Miles was there. I I, I already had, you know spoken with. Miles yeah, when you actually before, see but, him but, walking yeah. out on the stage, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just like shocking. Yeah, and I and I want to make sure that I'm not missing something, you know, because as I, I was watching it, I was just, you know, I, you you think, oh, Miles Davis, here we go, and it just didn't see the performance itself. Just seemed like a bunch of. I, I'm not a horn player, but uh-huh. it just seemed uninspired and just kind of just trudged along. Yeah. Were you as a horn, like, was just like, Matt, 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 yeah. Matt. And I was thinking to myself, am I missing something or are the other horn player, like, is Eric looking at him and going, uh, what exactly is this? And the second part of this question revolves around the song, uh, Can I Play With You, mm-hmm. which was sent off to Miles and he put his horn part on and sent it back. And I remember hearing you and Prince sitting down and looking at this and, and listening to it and going, okay, this is probably not where I expected to get back from him. So it, just kind of give me an idea. You know, obviously we're, we're running I, short on time, but I want to. Okay. Um, time, for, 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 first of all, of, of all the, mu- the musicians that are important to me. Um, and, you know, I could spend an hour just talking about my love for Afro-Cuban music and salsa and Eddie Palmieri and cats like that, because that's where I live as much as anything else. But as far as my aspirations for anything that I I would have, you know, tried to be as a musician when left my own devices, nobody is more significant for me than Miles, you know. Um, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No no one comes, you know, as as far as being able to say, okay, this... Um, you know, I was into Miles' music, but growing up at the time, his, his album, Bitches Brew, is probably still the singular most significant piece of music because that was the, more than anything else and all the, the hardcore yeah, traditional yeah. jazz that I love as much. But coming up at that time, um, in, in, in 1970, when I was like in, in, in senior in high school and getting ready to go on the next year to, to music school, um, it was like that was okay. Now I now I know what I want. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, right. More, and and there's other music that I love as much as that album, but that was the album that basically said, Oh my God, it's all here. Now, by the time I met Miles and got to know him in the 80s, Miles couldn't play no more. I mean, to be absolutely honest. He's mm-hmm. he was still the musician he was, and on any given night you could still feel the heart on, with his own gigs, but he couldn't play the trumpet too well anymore. And that's something I had already, you know, kind of come to terms with um, that his ability as a trumpet player, just, first of all, he had taken four or five years off in the late seventies. He can't do that. 
plane and then come back and think, you know. Right, you lose a step yeah. for yeah. sure. Um, now, on any given day, he still had great bands. He was still playing music that resonated with a lot of people. Um, but, you, you know, you know, I, I was looking at Miles and said, this is the cat who meant so much to me, but I was able to divorce that from what he was now. So it's not mm -hmm. like I'm sitting there being disappointed. Mm -hmm. Oh, Miles, so no, hell no. This is still Miles Davis. Um, but it was still kind of difficult for me to even relate to him as the, as the musician and, and, and what he was that I related and still do for what the music meant to me when I was growing up. Um, more specifically, that particular gig of, of Prince's band, I know it's iconic for many, many people because of, of, of this nature of the gig. It's a live gig by Prince. It's always going to have its moments. I didn't right. think that was a particularly good gig. No. I mean, from beginning right. to end, right. you know, I now, thought it was missing something. <laughs> it, it, well, what, what it was, what it was missing is the fact that we had been off. We, we oh, had, um, you see, we, the, the show was basically with some changes, basically um, what the sign of the times concert show had been. It was a little bit different in some places. It was kind of a transition period, but we had not gigged in several months. So it was New Year's New Year's Eve. Um, we had been on vacation. Everyone had scattered for the holidays, and we knew we were coming back to do that gig. So basically, for us, it, it was a pickup gig, and there was no real audience. It was a special invitation-only affair at Paisley Park. We played on the soundstage, and most of the people that were there were corporate people. Right. Yeah. Now, yes. what Prince did is is he. Um, he invited some younger kids to be there to just try to give it some kind of an ambience. But there really wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't something that we were really going to get that excited about as far as like getting any feedback from the audience. The main purpose of the concert was to raise money for a charitable organization that was um, giving out clothes and food to homeless people in Minneapolis because it was a brutally cold winter and and that was really the, the primary reason that the whole affair was um put together as as a new year's celebration um my, my mother and father came up from florida to to that and it was also um kind of introducing to the corporate people in in the twin cities paisley park as a business entity so you know, so so the, so the, you know, but the main purpose was to raise money for for homeless people, for you know, clothes and food for homeless people. Um, other than that, yeah, we were you know, you know, we were just there. I think you know, we did probably did. I, I assume we did a long rehearsal, maybe the, the you know the day before. We probably got in you know a day or two before, to basically just remember. Oh, okay, this is what we were doing four or five months ago. Um, so yeah, it 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 was a pickup game. It's really all it was. And, yeah. and, and so what was the story with the, can I play with you? Like what were your, do you, I, you must okay. have some type of expectations with that. Well, okay. The, the, Prince, um, when, when Miles was going to leave Columbia records and sign with Warner brothers, which was a big deal, you know, in, in the music business, been with Columbia records for 30 years or whatever. And now he's going to Warner brothers. So everybody at Warner brothers, knowing that Miles loved Prince and the Prince loved Miles, they thought it'd be a beautiful thing for Prince to, have a song of his given to Miles for, for Miles's first um, Warner Brothers album, the album that was a, a tutu. Anyway, so December 85, Alan called and said, Prince needs you out in California. 
And I said, oh, shit, you know, it goes my, it goes my Christmas. Well, it was the day after Christmas. So whatever, I flew out there. Um, Prince had the song. And he said, I wrote a song for Miles. And he said, I need you to um, put a horn arrangement on it. So I said, so I'm thinking, you know, uh, 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 yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and so anyway, I put, a horn, put the horn arrangement on it. Uh, Prince left the studio. I spent the evening putting a horn arrangement on it. Prince came back, double checked in. I said, you know, everything cool? He said, yeah, I really dig it. Fine. He said, um, Miles was living in Malibu at the time, I, I think. So Prince said to me, he said, uh, I think tomorrow I'm going to take the cassette over to Miles's house. They had, uh, I don't know if they, I think they had met briefly once for all of five minutes. And of course, I corrected Prince. I said, no, Prince, we are taking the tape to Miles' house. Um, right. Hello. Now, it, ne it never happened. Prince told me the next day, he said, no, I'm just going to, I'm just going to send it to him. I said, okay. Um, I didn't think the song was all that much, just personally, you know, but now on the other hand, it's not for me to say that. On the other hand, I'm just saying, I'm going to get into Miles Davis discography because of this, right. you know, because I'm on this song. Right. <laughs> so my own personal feelings about the song, the hell with that. Send it to Miles. Get Miles, you know. Um, it's my understanding that that some of the keyboard players that were in Miles's band put some more keyboards on the, on the song also. Um, we got the song back from Miles several months later. I don't think it was maybe till March or April, you know, several months later. Um, and only then get, did I kind of sit down and just listen to the whole thing. And I said, okay, now I can listen to it with some sort of detachment. Um, it was a bunch of horseshit. <laughs> I mean, to really be honest. But by, by then, my own feeling about the song was such that the song ain't great. Um, there really wasn't much for Miles to do with it, you know, mm. it, other than just play a few phrases in between some holes. Um, and, and, you know, this is Miles Davis. By then, whatever whatever was going to inspire Miles Davis to do something, either at his best or, heaven forbid, something that Miles he'd never heard from, this wasn't it. Right. You know? mm -hmm. So, um, I I didn't say you know I didn't say anything because uh, on the other hand, I'm like thinking you know I'd love no, nothing better than to, to, to scream from the rooftops. I'm gonna be on the next Miles Davis album. You know, even if it's just playing playing horn parts, you know, on on a song. Um, so, the, so I had a vested interest in wanting this to go forward, but you know, I I realized that you know just just from hearing Prince mention a few, I think Prince had asked me what I thought about it, and when Prince is when his mind is made up, he doesn't ask anybody's opinion. I mean, I mean, right. not in a manner that he's really interested from wanting to know. So I realized at that point that he had second thoughts because if he if, if he was good with it, he wasn't going, he wasn't he wasn't going to necessarily come to me. So what do you think about this? Should you know? And, and I told him, I said, Prince, look, once again, I'd love nothing better than 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 than, you know, to be on this album with his and, and have my name in the credits. So assuming that they might actually do that. But I said um, that, that this this ain't nothing here. And, and Prince basically, and I don't, I don't even remember what Prince said, but the fact that you never heard about it again was his answer. Right. Now I yeah, think Prince had already heard some of the other music that they had been doing. 
And that was a, uh, that album was produced primarily by Marcus Miller. Um, and the song would have been a real outlier. It would not have fit with what the rest of the album was going to be anyway. So, so from that standpoint, mm -hmm. it didn't make sense for the song song to be on it. So that, that, that was that, you know, and now I did finally get into Miles Davis discography several years later when Prince did a song for Chaka Khan called Sticky Wicked. Sticky that that was on, one, on her album. And I did, me and Matt Liston, we did the horn section work on that. And then they sent that to Miles and Miles plays around in it. So finally, officially, you look at the credits on that Chaka Khan album, tenor saxophone, trumpet by Eric Lees and Alana Bliss, trumpet solo by Miles said, yes, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, of course, I was, I was never, never in the studio working with Miles. Prince was never in the studio with Miles. The only time Miles Davis and Prince were ever in the same room for the purpose of making music together in real time was on that gig. At, on, on that gig. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, no. so, all right. So we only have 15 more minutes all left right. with, with Eric. And so I'm going to let, I'll ask one more question. Jeff, you can ask one more question. Rob, you can ask one more question. So go over your questions that you have and pick out which one that you, you got to ask so that he can get to his game. Uh, Rob or Jeff, whichever one of you is, is got your question ready. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually do because it's it's kind of off of what you were just saying, mm -hmm. and so my thing is, uh, is there a song that you can think of for for all intents and purposes that that you've done uh, with Prince or you know in your time that you just knew, like you knew this was the one, you know, like something about it was like, oh, this is awesome, and and what you played, you knew was the hit, like it, like oh, this is magic but it still never actually made the cut. Is there any song that like, for some reason you're like, what happened? Um, well, I, I can tell you probably one, one of my absolute favorite Prince of songs. And I believe it, um, it, it, it is it on the sign of the times box set? It was a song called um, in, in a room with no light. Uh, yes. Is, is that on yeah. the box set? I, I it, uh, it yes, is. Yes, okay. It is. Super deluxe. Um, yeah. Now the thing is that's Wendy and Lisa's song. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. they, 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 you know, the, the, that was, and it was one of the few times that it was actually a live performance in the studio. Sheila was on drums, Wendy and Lisa, myself, um, Appleton on trumpet. We actually had a third horn on that. There was, there's a, a wonderful saxophone player by the name of Norbert Statchel, who lives in New York, is an alto player, and he was a member of Sheila E's band at the time. So he was on, he was on, on that recording with us. Um, I play a little solo at the end of it as as it fades out. The solo, you know, solo is just whatever it was. Really? But, but the <laughs> but the um and the background vocals and everything that Wendy and Lisa and Sheila and Susanna Melvoin did were absolutely just wonderful. But Sheila on drums on that is just ridiculous. I mean, oh, she yes. just just it's just tremendous. I freaking love that song. Now. You know, it, it it wasn't something that I went away with thinking, oh, this is going to be a great, a big hit because I don't, I don't have, a, I don't have a good track record for um, predicting <laughs> hits. You know, to me, Kiss was a was a throwaway. Right. You know, right. yeah. It so was the biggest hit, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> you know, what 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 do I know? Um, but that but that was that was one. I always really really dug uh, uh dug Power Fantastic. Once uh, again, <laughs> once again, that was a Wendy and Lisa song. So. You, you know, um, great to know. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, the, the you know, they're wow. 
So hmm. there, there was a, there was another song of his that that this is funny. This is funny when when Prince could get very excited about something, but you had to realize that his excitement about something was excitable only for that moment. You know, and and what Prince might say or feel about something at the moment was heartfelt, but it had shit to do with what he was going to think or say about it a week later. You know, right. <laughs> so so you know that was part of his process. One of one of the first songs of his that I um, did anything on was a song called "Sexual Suicide," mm-hmm. and I <laughs> has it ever come out? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, okay. yeah. Black okay. album, uh, was that no? It's an outtake on the Crystal Ball. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and I have no. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't even know if I have. I, I might have that somewhere. Okay, I've got rough mixes that I did of the song with the horns way loud. You know, I had gone and and it was a song that he wasn't in the studio with me. He he just left instructions. He just said, said "I need you to go in and do something with this." Um. So I, I went in on, on an evening and did whatever I did. The next day he came back to me and he said, um, I love what you did on the end of it. Can you do more of that kind of stuff on the beginning? And through the, you know, I said, sure. What fine with me. I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm getting another, you know, I'm getting another paycheck. So right. fine. I'll, I'll do, you know, night after night. Is it right yet? I can go in tomorrow night and do better because I paycheck every night, you know. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, I went in the next night and and um, it was just me and, and his engineer at the time, Susan Rogers, and she came up with some really cool um, uh, effects on some of the horns. Um, so whatever it was that I, I came up with, the next day Prince came to me and he was like, you would have thought that he just invented the bicycle. I mean, that was the greatest thing in the world. Now, from from my standpoint, well, this is good. It's good when the boss really likes what you do. Um, but y- you know, from a standpoint, well, this is Prince, and and just from a musical standpoint, him him giving me props, you know, I don't take that lightly, you know. So, right. uh, you know, but you, you know, it was like, well, the song didn't come out until what ten years later. <laughs> so right. whatever his excitement about, you know. So that you was- had to realize that's just part of 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 the process, right? You know. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very, very typical. So my question is about the flesh. Hmm. Um, obviously, that was a project that had so many amazing songs. Uh, lucky enough that I connected with a bunch of different uh, collectors of Prince's music and unreleased. Uh, and I've got pretty much everything from, from the flesh. Yeah, it's all out there. It's all out High colonic and all those stuffs. Yeah. And you were actually uh, very – you were – heavily involved in that whole entire process with you know uh, junk music and and high just just everything that was on there and you did a lot of the production work on it and everything and you just put in so many hours and just kind of crafting this and i guess my question is um you know first off it preceded madhouse i saw some questions about you know whether or not madhouse was going to do another album And, and as far as i know there's like three albums by madhouse one of which is unreleased uh, well, well, my my first my first solo album, Times Squared, was going to be a third Madhouse album. Originally, it was right. going to be the second the second second attempt at a third Madhouse album. Right, it, it, but who it was. But anyway, right. you had this just a massive library of officially unreleased jams, technically. But yeah, Times Squared. If anybody wants another Madhouse album, all you need to do is simply get 
Times Squared because that's pretty much it. Third well, y- yeah, I mean, it was kind of picking up, you know, I mean, if anyone really wants it, this is what I do now with Paul Peterson. We got our thing LP music. This album is not out yet, but it will be. Um, huh? You saw really? it here first, everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, an, is this an LP project or what? Is it was, it? Yeah, it was LP music. It, it, it was the thing we did a few years ago. We uh, crowdfunded it. So the only people that have it are the people that contributed, you know, to to us being able to make it. Is the um, title? What's have a title? What's the title of that? Yeah, it's called uh, No Words. Okay. Um, yeah, No Words. Yeah. All right. So, so it, it, it's it's not currently available. We still we're we're still looking. We still are waiting to hear from a couple of labels that have expressed a little bit of interest. You know, I'm not I'm not not holding my breath as much as mm-hmm. I'd like to. So we'll we'll. We'll throw it out there independently eventually. So, you know, uh, Quest, Questlove plays on a track. Mike Stern is on guitar and a couple of things. Nice. Um, it's, okay. yeah. And anyway, um, well, but, well, but the question about the flash yeah. works is that you were pretty much responsible for editing and putting together this album, The Flesh, and did a lot of work. And of course, it got shelved. Well, uh, it was never, it was never going to be released. Oh, I thought it was. Okay. Because no. well, that was that, my question about, you know, the editing and the unenviable task no, of having to the, choose between all those songs and ultimately how, it, how you felt about that process. All Everything on there, those sessions were just extemporaneous jam sessions over a period of few few nights. In fact, it was the same week, um, you know, the week or two after I had gone out to to do the, the Can I Play With You for Miles. I was out there, you know, I was supposed to be out there for two days. I, I ended up being stuck out there for like two or three weeks. And we were going to the studio a lot. Um, and on any given night, Sheila might be with us, Levi Caesar, um, Wendy and Lisa were with us on some on, on one or two of the nights or whatever. So that's what all of this stuff came from. Um, Prince basically, you know, Prince would get excited about, like I say, but he never once ever really indicated that this is something he was serious about. And I never, and I never took mm-hmm. it to be that. What he was doing for me, which I was so grateful and and thankful for, is he was basically saying, you know, I got the studio locked out, you know, Sunset Sound out in LA. I feel like going out. I ain't coming to the studio. And I got a date. The <laughs> cool. studio's yours. Take this music and have fun. I love it. Do whatever the hell you want with it. Chop it up. If you want to do some overdubs, take that 40, you know, the junk music thing was like 40, 45 minutes. He said, try to, yeah, try, <laughs> try to come up with something that maybe actually musically might make sense just to see. And, and that's basically what, what all I had in mind. And I'm just sitting there. I said, this is great. This is what I love to do. I got a world-class recording studio. I got all of this. I got great engineers that I, I can learn things. They were working with an engineer. His name was uh, Coke, Coke Johnson, um, who was working with Prince out at Sunset at that time. So basically it was he and I in the, in the studio for several nights, just screwing around with this stuff. And wow. the junk music, some of it, but the, the, the junk music and that stuff wasn't even on multi-track. We recorded it direct to two-track. So the, you couldn't remix anything on it. It was wow. what it was. So I was just thinking, okay, how would I try to edit this extemporaneous? I mean, we're, we're, we're just, you know, 40 minutes of us just jerking off. It's really all it was. <laughs> and with something like that, you, you, you might find four or five minutes that are really cool. And then 10 minutes of us just searching for the next musical point, you know. So it, it, it gave me the opportunity for, and, and with, with this guy, Coke Johnson, who was like a real old school 
cut and paste engineer who knew how to you know take a razor blade to the tape and 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 all of that mm. and it was the first opportunity that i really had to re able, be able to really kind of experiment with editing and things like that and i learned i learned a lot because there's certain things that i would say okay here here's a an obvious edit point where you know i want to use this like three or four minutes and i got 10 minutes of just bullshit. let's get rid of that and then we'll cut back in here's the point where i'll cut back in and and we you know, take out the middle and then butt it together. The only thing was over a 10 minute time, even though Prince was was playing drums on then, this time was very good. The time was just shifting enough yeah. that now you realize there's a tempo difference here and that ain't work. So now back to square one. So you learn all these tricks and there were some things that I would say, well, here are two points that I think would musically make a good edit. And Coke Johnson would say, I can't edit there because, and I'd say, why not? He said, listen to it, listen to the symbol. Listen to the ride symbol. And I said, okay. He said, this is, and he would show me. He would cut. He would make the edit and cut and said, and then I'd hear it. The symbol would choke mm. because he had to find a place where the symbol could bleed over. Yeah, because it kept ringing out. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So there were other points where I would listen and I would say, well, this, this would be good at a point. I don't think this would work. And Coke would tell me, no, that I can make work. And I'd sit there and I'd say, how are you going to do that? And he said, I'll show you. Take a razor blade, put it together with scotch tape, seamless. So this, <laughs> this is what I got out of that. Wow. And I said, this is great. This is, like, this is like going to school. You know, so, so, so I never had any, any disappointment of the fact that it, it was never going to be released. I knew it was, wasn't going to be released. Now, I happen to feel that from my own personal standpoint, there are some minutes of that music that I like a hell of a lot better than anything we did under the name Madhouse. Yeah. There's some great you know. songs at Madhouse, but yeah, I, I love a lot of the stuff that's on the flesh. Rob, Rob are you back? Are, are, you got audio now? Nope. He doesn't have audio. Nope, no. still okay. But I knew what his, I knew what his question was. He told me what his question was. He wanted to know uh, what it was like the first time that you actually met Prince, the first 10 minute period of window where you first met Prince, what it was like, what kind of vibe you got from him, um, you know, that that type of, uh, and I don't want to kind of mess up his question, but it said, please describe your first meeting with Prince, you know, the first, you know, songwriting experience, you know. And, well, 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 the fir first meeting was was working on the music for what, what was going to be the family album. And, and because, um, you know, my involvement as a member of his band didn't come until years later, and there was absolutely nothing about, you know, it wasn't a thought that I had, and I don't think it's the thought he had. Um, he was putting together this project, the family, and he decided he wanted a saxophone player on it. Um, like I said, Alan, my brother Alan had played him some. Prince was um, sufficiently enthused um, to to want to fly me up to to do a recording session. Um, I had no illusions or expectations about it because it was kind of funny for me to, for my brother to say, well, he, he's putting a new group together. He wants you in the group. I said, well, what is he, he hasn't even met me yet. What, you know, he wants me in a band that he's putting together. You know, um, you know, at, at, at that point in time, if you're a producer making like an R&B, you know, in the mid 80s, making an R&B funk album and you want a saxophone player, most producers can call David Sanborn. You know, right. at that point in time, right. time or Michael yeah. Brecker or Prince could call call Maceo. You know, fortunately, Prince was not somebody. You know, Prince Prince wasn't really that interested in having a known sound. You know, he wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, he liked people that were kind of what he kind of considered homegrown or whatever. Um, 
So fortunately, whatever it was that he heard that 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 he was sufficiently enthusiastic about that I came up. Now, at, like I said, at that point, I was had very, very little familiarity with, with his music. The only album of his that I had even ever listened to was 1999. I didn't much care for it. I liked the song 1999. The rest of the album just didn't appeal to me. Um, Purple Rain was just coming out. I don't even know if the album was out yet uh, when Doves Cry was out. And I kind of mm -hmm. dug that. I, I, I found it more interesting than something that I was going to really love. But it, was, but it was an interesting piece. So, so that was pretty much my sum total of knowledge of, of Prince. So yeah. I'm going in to do a recording session for this guy. And I'm going to get paid for it. And at the, at the end of the session, I'm going to go home to Atlanta and we'll see what happens next. Um, Alan introduced me to him. I think I flew up here. It was a Sunday evening. The session was the next afternoon. Came into um, the studio which was in a warehouse, um, you know, this is years before Paisley Park had been built. So he was, you know, it was just like a rehearsal hall and he had a studio set up in it, but I mean, there was no isolation or anything. It was just this big room. Um, he had, a, he had four songs ready to go. All four songs that were, that were on, that ended up on, on the family album. Um, and the first thing he said to me was, um, I could give you a cassette to live with with a couple of day for a couple of days if you want to familiarize yourself with the music, and I didn't want to do that because mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't want to have any obligation or accountability beyond just what it, whatever it was that I was going to be able to do in this recording session. I wanted the session to start. I wanted it to, to, to end, to be done with it, and go home. And whatever was going to happen, you know, but but if he's given us, oh, that what I'm supposed to come in here and feel like I've, I'm, you know, that I'm into this because I didn't want to even be into it at that point. I just wanted yeah. to do the session. So I, I looked at him and I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to be cocky or anything. I, I just I just said, well, if that's what you would want, fine. But I said, you know, I got my horn. I'm ready to go if you just want to hit it. And Let's he kind of, you know, I kind of remembered him as just maybe, you know, giving me one of his little smiles like, oh, okay, you know, let's see what the, you know, whether it were really that, I don't know, you would have asked him. All I know is that's what we did. And two and a half hours later, session was over. He had four songs and it was, thank you very much. This is where you send the check. And, you know, that was, that was for now. Now, I enjoyed it. I, I truly enjoyed, first of all, I enjoyed the music, which was, which was important. Um, and I enjoyed working with him. It was, it was an enjoyable afternoon. And, um, you know, I'm hardly going to say that I went out of there thinking, oh my God, this is the greatest musician I could ever, you know, clearly he knew what he wanted. He knew how to get out of me things that were appropriate for the songs, you know, besides just what I would have done left of my own devices. So, um, so, so, so there was that. So there, there was an, you know, an understanding that okay, this, this, this is a serious guy. That whatever the music is, whether I like the music or not, this guy is serious. But you know, I, it would be an insult to say that I came out of there thinking, oh my God, because a musician of Prince's caliber, everything that you can learn about him, you're not going to get from just one, two-hour session. You know, right, right. all it was was four pieces of music, and 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 coincidentally. Um, Two of the two of the pieces of music were just straight ahead, 
kind of kind of just typical R&B funk jams, mm-hmm. which, which shit I had been doing <laughs> professionally and personally for 15, 20 years already. So there was nothing more of it. You know, those songs just fell just in my wheelhouse. So, you know, that that that's basically what like, okay, cool. You know. Yeah. You know, you know my, my involvement and, and my you know real appreciation of him was incremental. It's something that you learn off over a period of time. What was so fast, you know, so wonderful was to be a part of his musical process. Mm. You know, he didn't ask me to come into the studio. He told me because it was my job. You know, one, mm-hmm. you know, once particularly once I was a member of his band, it's like, you know, I get a call from him or I get a call from my brother or one of the or one of the people in the office. He said, Prince needs you to come in the studio at eight o'clock this evening. And I was like, well, I don't feel like it tonight. No, you know, it's my right. job. So we're right. there at eight o'clock. Now, on any given night, um, depending on what the music was and then depending on what the mood of Prince was, um, a lot of times me and me and Matt Pliston, we Sometimes he might play us to track first, but a lot of times he wouldn't. You know, there were nights on, on a certain song that he knew exactly what he wanted us to do. And he would get us in the studio, get our horns, we'd warm up, they'd do a sound check at the sound, the engineer, and he would maybe just fast forward the song and maybe a minute, minute and a half in the song. He said, okay, here's the line I need you to play. And he'd hum the line to us like, whatever, you know. So I said, okay, and here's where to put it. I'm, you, you know, we're eight bars before where I need you to put it. So I'll start the tape there. I'll give you a count. One, two, three, four, you're in. So we're hearing it. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. You know, and that's it. And they said, cool. Now, let me let me fast forward the tape where I need you to do that again. You know, and I said, now I'm going to back up the tape to the bridge. Eric, I, I, I need a horn line for the bridge. I don't have one. Give me something. I said, I haven't even heard it yet. Play me the, you know, I said, oh, okay, okay. You'll play me like eight bars. And I said, now, if you're working with Prince in that, whatever, whatever, you have to do it fast. Mm. You know, you don't have time to think about it in that circumstance. You basically just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to be crude. I'm pulling down my pants. I'm bending over and I'm farting. <laughs> and whatever comes out, that's what's going on tape. <laughs> that's right you know really so right. and and yeah. and if he doesn't dig it then he'll say no that ain't it so i'll bend over again all right you know i i i, I have beans for dinner I, I got been you know i got plenty you know um or he might say i like it except for the third note can you change it a little bit that's fine whatever you want or i might say you know prince if we're going to change that voice leading would be better if we now did this. That's how that might happen, you know. Yeah. And basically, then he might fast forward and say, "Okay, um, I got to vamp out for the last thirty seconds. I need you to put a solo. Just start playing. You know, we're in the key of E, whatever, whatever key we're in. There ain't no changes. Just I'll give you four, hit it, and just play it out. And that's it. And then only then we come in the booth, and he might then play the song for us from beginning to end, so we even see what the hell we're, we're really doing." Now, another night, he might play us the song first and, and just say, um, I don't have any, you know, I know I know what I want, but I'm not sure how to get there yet. On another song, he might, I might get instructions and say, 
he needs you to do an arrangement on the song, but he's not going to be there. So go in the studio and do whatever you want. Um, over a period of time, and, and there are always exceptions to this, but I, I, I kind of learned that over a period of time, if he wasn't at the session, more often than not, the song didn't mean as much to him as a song that he was going to be at the session and hands-on with us. Um, now, I'm sure there were exceptions to that, but and then and then there were, were other times well, where, where he would have something done and then give it to me after the fact and say, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is done. But just out of curiosity, take it and screw around with it and see what you come. Which is what he did with with uh, um, Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Right. You know. Um, that yes. that you know that song that song was done. Now that's one of my absolute favorite songs of his. Mine too. Um, that song was done, and we already we already had it. So I mean, I had already heard it, and and I, I was really very surprised when he asked me, you know, to to do something with that. Uh, now he wasn't there. There were a couple other songs he needed needed me to do something. So so me and Bliston we went in. I, I wrote a, wrote an arrangement for it, and I was I was I was not surprised at all that that he didn't use what what we did. Um, and curiously, for whatever reason, I didn't take home a rough mix of that. Oftentimes, I would get rough mixes of whatever we, we, we would do sometimes in the studio. But I didn't, I didn't have one for that. So over the years, um, I, I didn't have a copy of that. So I, I had no recollection of, of what it was that we had actually done. And then once, many, many years after the fact, I, I, I was cleaning out a, a, an old file cabinet of, of music. And I came across some sheet music. And it didn't have a title on it. And I'm looking at this. What what in the world is my hand, my handwriting? And I said, what in the world is this? So I sat down at the piano and started playing. I said, oh, wow, this is the horn arranger I did for, for Dorothy Parker. So I, you know, because I, I, I had written it out. And I'm sitting there playing the lines. And I said, oh, it was nice, whatever, you know. So when, when, when it came out in the box set last year, it was the first time I had heard it since we did it. And... I like, I mean, I like what I did. I like the horn lines that, you know, but. I didn't like it the first time that I heard it. Well, it doesn't really have much. The fact that it grew because the original had grown on me so yeah, much. Yeah. But yeah. now that I've heard it more often, because we actually play, we actually play, we have an online radio station called Funked Up and it plays it plays 24 seven and, and, okay, and, well, that and that stuff is in there. And now that I've heard it a lot of times, I do actually well, really like it. Yeah. Yeah. But you see, th th this it's is really flat. what it was. My, <laughs> my, my arrangement on it was a solution in search of a problem. <laughs> That's a that good way to put it, I guess. You know, like because, because here, here, here's what I, here was what my, my process was. I didn't give a damn about the song. It, I mean, to the extent like I really dug the song, but it was like, this song now belongs to me, is my you know, <laughs> approach. It's now, he's given the song, and if you kind of listen to it, it's almost like horn arrangement with vocal accompaniment. Right. <laughs> you know, right. is really what it was. Yeah. Now, so I understood when he didn't use it, there was no reason for him to, because it really didn't. There was no added value to what the story of the song was. So even with me and my ego, or whatever, I could say, yeah, man, if he had released it with the horns, that would have been the bomb. No, 
I never ever listened to that song and thought, oh, wow, he should, you know, uh-uh. That song was that song was a perfect little gem, the way it was. And the horns were just me having and and I was once it was like, hey, that's cool. He's asking me to take a piece of music that I like, and I'm gonna go in the studio and just fuck around with it. And whatever I come up with is like, he's either going to use it or not. And what do I care? I'm getting paid. Right. You know, I'm getting a paycheck one one way or the other. So it, it, yeah, it, it, uh, you know, uh, somebody else, well, here, uh, we, I don't remember ever playing that song with him live. We did rehearse it a couple of times in, in the rehearsals for what became the sign of the time show. Mm -hmm. But it never made the show. But I do recall that a, that in a couple of the rehearsals, we didn't use any of the horn lines that I'd written, but we did add a pad, like a horn line, you know, just like whole notes underneath the chords, just two-part harmony to reinforce the basic chords that were playing on keyboards. And if I had gone in and just done that, it might have actually added something that he might have used and that might have actually added some because it was something that would just added a little texture without drawing attention to itself, which is really what the arrangement should have been. But that was that wasn't what my intent was. So right. so that wasn't what he was going to get. So you know, so I I laughed and and just said, oh, this is funny. They're actually finally going to release that. Well, let me hear what it is. And I said, oh, well, that's some great lines. Well, guess what? Sooner or later, you might hear that arrangement in a song of mine somewhere down the line. You know, right. So, <laughs> right. Well. Yeah. Last week we had Greg Boyer on the show and I'm he in. told us that you uh, made him late to rehearsal one time because you were trying to smuggle in liquid chicken into an arena. Is that a story? No, don't, don't, <laughs> don't remember. That, that's, that, that, that's a Greg Boyer story. That's a Greg Boyer story, which means it's completely made up. <laughs> uh, no, actually, it, actually, I kind of twisted that one. He said that I, I wanted him to come up with a story that yeah. was tied to you. That's a good one. And, yeah. and and he said he said you know I, I was late for a practice one time and I came into the room and Eric and all you guys were sitting there and he said I'm sorry it's late somebody was held up at the gate because they were trying to smuggle in liquid chicken and ev <laughs> and everybody laughed and, and Prince was like you're crazy right yeah. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen we got to let this man get to his back to his my game right. Eric Leeds thank you so thank much you, thank you Eric thank you thank you Christopher Christopher Jeff Bob Rhythm thank you, thank you so much. Well, right. it's, it's been an honor, sir. Thank you so, so much. Get to your game. Get out of All here. All right, man. Peace. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Okay, man. Bye-bye.